Nadia. Welcome to the Nature Untold podcast. On this podcast, we share stories of all kinds of addiction, recovery, and sobriety within the outdoor community and industry. Hosted by John Holnier, produced by me, Emily Holland, on this show, you'll hear stories from all parts of our outdoor community, from the weekend warriors to the folks summiting Everest and everything in between. From folks struggling with alcohol to folks struggling with drugs to codependency and love addiction, we represent all types of recovery stories. Our goal is simple and twofold. First, we aim to normalize these types of discussions within the outdoor spaces we love, play, and teach in. And second, we want people who are struggling to know they aren't alone, that we're all in this together. We're so glad you're here. Now let's get on to the show. This episode of the Nature Untold podcast is brought to you by Bigger Life Adventures. Bigger Life Adventures offers yoga and adventure retreats for deep healing. They believe in community, nature, yoga, and new adventures. These retreats are designed with recovery in mind. The founders, Carrie and Zach, are both in long-term recovery from addiction and proud of it. It doesn't stop there though. Everyone is recovering from something, whether it's trauma, substance abuse, heartbreak, stress, or just the disconnection of life in our high-tech world. Bigger Life Adventures offers discounted recovery scholarships because they believe that these experiences should be accessible to all. To apply to a scholarship, send an email to info at biggerlifeadventures.com to share your story. You can find all of their upcoming adventures at www.biggerlifeadventures.com retreats and use the code natureuntold to get $50 off any retreat. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Support for Nature Untold comes from Sawyer Products. From water filters to insect repellent, Sawyer makes the gear you use to get outside. On top of that, every product you buy helps bring clean water programs to people in need domestically, internationally, and in disaster relief missions all around the world. We appreciate Sawyer's support and their mission. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. Today we're sitting down with Andrew Gibbs Dabney. Andrew is the founder and CEO of Livson Designs. He's an avid outdoorsman based in the Ozarks of Northwest Arkansas. I had such a great time talking with Andrew and I know y'all are gonna love this one. So let's get to it. Welcome back everyone. We're uh, excited to have you here today. Today we're sitting down with Andrew Gibbs Dabney and Andrew, we we're really excited to have you and thanks for being here with us. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It seems like a really great uh, podcast and mission you're on. Yeah, yeah, we appreciate that. I think the best place, you know, like we start every episode here pretty much is a little bit about your general backstory, just kind of like where you're from, some of the the real simple background info if if you want to start there. Currently, I live in Bentonville, Arkansas. I've lived most of my life in Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is about 25 minutes south. Um, Bentonville's most known for being the home of Walmart and most more recently being a really great place to mountain bike. And then Fayetteville is most known for being where the University of Arkansas is. So it's more, it's a younger city, it's a college town in a really beautiful setting. So where those are, if people aren't familiar with the Ozark Mountains, it's probably most similar to like a smaller version of like the Smoky Mountains or the Adirondacks, you know, kind of more East Coast than West Coast as far as the the general topography. And, you know, we have rivers and streams and uh, bluffs and hollows and hills and mountains and just a really great outdoor playground here that's a little less a little less known than, than other places, which has been a great place to grow up and, and has also been a great place to stay. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I love that. This is This is exciting for me because, you know, I grew up in the Ozarks too, in the the northern half of the Ozarks up here in mm-hmm. Missouri. And I keep, I feel like I, every episode I have to bring it up and talk about how cool the Midwest is to people. Cause most of the folks that I've talked to on the show so far are from like, 
the North Pacific Northwest or like Colorado or somewhere. And I always have to get in that like, Hey, we have cool stuff here too. So I'm excited to have a fellow, uh, what is it? Ozarkian or, or, uh, what do we, <laughs> sure. what do we call it? <laughs> um, hillbilly. No. Yeah. 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 Uh, there you go. The, uh, there you go. yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. Like I've, I've grown up here I've, and oh, you know, I've mountain biked in Colorado my entire life and skied and been out West and, and it's just, it's beautiful and grand. And some of the sites out there are second down in the whole world, but there's something special about the Ozarks. They're, you know, kind of magical. It's, it's, there is somewhat of this like mountain, I say hillbilly, but in, in an endearing term, like the people yeah. here are friendly and they're rugged and you have to be, it's, it's, it's not like what you'd picture for the Midwest. It's, it's beautiful. Go down to the Buffalo river area or up, you know, in your neck of the woods, it's just breathtaking. So yeah, happy to, happy to share in the promotion of our region. It's, it's a great place to be. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's just like, it's a, it's a different vibe. Like you're talking about, it's not that epic grandiose kind of thing. It's, it's just, you know, it's so old. The mountains themselves mm-hmm. are s- such an old mountain range. And it's just like, it is a different kind of experience. Um, yeah, man, I've, I've loved getting outside here my whole life. And I feel really lucky to be from here as well. Okay, so that's that's kind of the the background where you're from and and the simple kind of stuff. I think the next the next thought I have is, you know, what really caused me to reach out to you was seeing that that post that you made on, on LinkedIn about your, uh, your rehab experience and running a business and starting a business. And so I think maybe that would be kind of a, a good place to get into the backstory of how that all happened, what your, you know, what life was like before that experience and before going to rehab and then what that looked like, I guess, for you. Some build up to this, it starts actually a long time ago. So, you know, this is this being a, a podcast about recovery and, and overcoming that. Um, you know, my my drug of choice and and what brought me to to a pretty dark place was oxycotton, so opiates, mm. also other pills, you know, benzos, stuff like that. Yeah. And um, so, I think the story really starts weirdly enough when I was born. I I, I was born with a, a defect in my feet, just from the way I was sitting in the womb, where my I was pigeon toed to the point where my feet were actually backwards, wow. and had to have eight eight surgeries from the first one at two weeks, the last uh, one at twelve years old, to correct that. And the way they did it at the time was to you know kind of break and reform the bones and then let them wow. grow back to wow. in and then do it again and then cast it and kind of grow and do it again, and so I was exposed to opiates at a very young age and there's there's a lot of science around like you know your brain becomes really good at processing um things if it's exposed to them repeatedly so that's not just chemicals or substances but also thoughts and patterns and and Mm. you know activities so i think that there was already some predisposition in the way i'm wired to be fond of opiates and that feeling and so what brought me to what ended up happening and, and, and we'll get there is I ended up robbing a liquor store here in mm. Arkansas and, and doing, and doing some, some moderate time for it or an early, really small time. We'll get into that. Yeah. yeah. I got to the university of Arkansas as a freshman and, and like most or not most, but many people that go into that environment, you have a lot of freedom, you can experiment. And, and I was offered Oxycontin for the first time my freshman year. Wow. Um, it was kind of an immediate, you know, we just clicked. Right. Um, yeah. It just felt felt kind of right, and I think a lot of that has to do, like I said, with that kind of previous exposure to those drugs, and and in a non recreational sense, but it just it kind of felt right. And very quickly, it turned from recreational, you know, Friday Saturday night used to Sunday morning used to Monday to Tuesday to every yeah, day to for sure. to becoming less of a recreational activity and more of just a subsistence one, right? Yep. Like, and that's the dangerous point that people get to without even realizing, especially with with that particular class of drugs is you're taking it for other reasons. Mine was recreational, but a lot of people are doing it for medical reasons and yeah. you don't realize you're building up this physical dependence. Right. And that happens even faster than the mental side of it. Right. But your body becomes dependent on this, the substance quickly and it's very painful to stop. And so you can kind of go down a rabbit hole there, but a lot of people find themselves addicted without realizing they ever went down that path because they were just following directions. For sure. Yeah. How long do you think that process uh, took for you? That's, it really resonates with me. I mean, you know, alcohol was my, my drug of choice and that's what, what did it for me. And I'm, I'm always grateful or, or I think that's the right word that it wasn't, you know, oxy or something else that, that feels like it has like another level of chemical dependency involved in it. 
and that's just by chance for me that it that it didn't go that way. I feel like because I think it's the same thing that clicks in all of us that that finds that thing that feels that way, and then you, you just chase it as hard as you can. But mine happened freshman year of college too. My my alcohol uh, abuse really started just like in the dorms at Mizzou here, and it was like mm-hmm. immediately like oh shit, this is the answer. Like, this is what I've been missing. And this is what I've been looking for. For me, it went pretty quickly to like partying on the weekends to, uh, you know, during the week to not go into class anymore within, I want to say by, by the start of second semester for me, freshman year, how, uh, how quickly was that process for you that it was like recreational until it wasn't? It, it was pretty quick. I, I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. To me, it was still recreational. Just the problem with me in freshman year, similar to what you said, is everything was recreation. So like every day we were just kind of hanging out. Yeah. Right. And going to class or not. And, and that's not a recommended path that I recommend to anybody. It just was the situation I was in. Right. And so it took a long time to realize that it had gone from recreational to, to not. And um, I think the first time that I realized it actually was a couple years later when I went and worked out of state for a summer, I had gone to go be a raft guide on the Koei River. Actually, I was working for Nana Hill Outdoor Center. I was guiding. No way. I didn't know that. I worked for NOC too. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. I was at the Chattooga. Yeah. Nice. I was on the Koei. Oh, that's cool. That's really funny. Yeah. The guy actually I was camping with last night is my old roommate back then had worked worked there for like seven years. He did the Koei. Then he went to did raft repair at the the actual Nanahela for a long time. yeah, man, uh, I uh, I did Chattooga my first year and ended up being a, a kayak guy at a KG over there because it was like a high mm-hmm. water hurricane season. And so I just got to kayak like safety boat every day on section four. And then from there, I moved over to the to Wesser to be a kayak instructor, part of the instruction crew and did that for like three years over there. So I lived in in Wesser or at Wesser for like in staff housing for like three years. It's awesome. One of the best experiences of my life. Yeah. I love it out there. Me too. I, I was able to do it for one season. Um, but the, the time living in staff housing on the ACOE was just incredible. Yeah. So like what I realized was going out, I'm always, obviously it was now cut off from a supply of what I didn't know I was addicted to really. You sure. know what I didn't know was physically sure. like that. And so, yeah. um, had some, you know, fairly minor withdrawals because at the time it wasn't like a, it wasn't as serious as far as volume of use as that at that point. And, was like, oh, wow. And, uh, you know, tried multiple times to source drugs out there and couldn't, you know, just like you just uh, mm-hmm. use the, the signs were there. There was something wrong, even though I was not using to that summer. And so actually the interesting thing was the next summer I went to go intern down in Austin. I was working at a, a law firm because philosophy degree. And I was thinking maybe I'd go into law yeah. and uh, got down there that time and brought stuff with me and had to detox myself. And that's when I realized that I was yeah, I knew what had happened last time. Yeah, you know, you have withdrawals for the first time, and then I brought enough to kind of taper down over the course of of two weeks. So anyway, coming back from that, that would have been about 2010 is when things got just full blown. I did end up failing out of university. Didn't you know? Didn't make good grades. Wasn't going to class. Moved the you know the addiction progressed to several hundred dollars a day of a habit um, with no income and. You know, I didn't, I hate to say this because I did something awful, but I wasn't really like an asshole. Like I didn't lose all my friends still had, you know what I mean? But like, yeah, I was, I was like 115 pounds. I didn't look good. I wasn't mm. doing it. I wasn't eating well. I wasn't working out. I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything except for drugs, you know? And that's just a, a downward spiral at that point. Like you just, just, it's hard to pull yourself out. Yeah. It's wild what your body can kind of like adjust to gradually, you mm-hmm. know, and when you're in that place, like it's, it takes a while to realize like, oh, I'm not <laughs> I, I, like, you don't, it's not like it's an overwhelming physical, like noticeable thing every single day, but it's just such a gradual process that you don't realize how unhealthy you are because it happens so slowly. And then it's just your daily experience. And then once you go without the substance or once you start to get clean, you you get that feeling back of like, oh, this is what it's this is what it's supposed to actually feel like. It's pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's it's insidious, and like I said, like, and, and I don't think alcohol is any less this way if you're disposed to that as you know the same same path. I mean, opiates have the I just have this grip on people, right? No matter what they're disposed to, you know. And some people can can drop it, but it doesn't matter who you are. If you're if you're prescribed it, and you take it for three months. You you are physically addicted. You need to taper off. And good doctors know that too, right? Sure. They won't just be like, and you're gone. You know, they'll say, okay, we're going to reduce your dosage so that people don't have to go through that. And then hopefully they kind of 
can progress on with their life and forget about it, which most people do. I think, you know, when things got bad, obviously the, the addiction progressed, my, my, um, changed the way I was ingesting the particular drug and, uh, or putting it in my body and ended up in a place where I owed lots of money to people that you should know money to and didn't have a, any means of, of earning anything else. At least I you know, didn't have any other options at least. And sure. At least that were clear to me. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand. I think when they look at drug addicts and specifically in alcoholics is the like presence of mind to be for self-reflection doesn't really exist. Yeah. You're kind of always caught up in this like survival mode that you look back and say, what were they thinking? And the real answer is that they weren't thinking like you can't, you can't judge it through a sober lens and think that they were sitting there like, you know, journaling that day about their feelings and decided right, they need right. to do. it's just, that's just not the world you're in. You're kind of just surviving and you're going from stimulus to stimulus. Yeah. That part of your brain doesn't exist at that point necessarily on a, on a surface level. Like you, you don't have access to that point of your, your brain. The other, the other parts have completely taken over. Mm-hmm. Or you just don't listen to it. You know, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's not present as far as front of mind. And I don't necessarily like, and, and you, you know, a lot of your listeners probably understand this, but when you're doing, you know, Oxy and, and Xanax and pills and stuff, like your, your memory is hazy. It's like my actual memory of like that whole really year before this happened. And, um, the actual event when I, when I robbed the liquor store is, is so hazy. It's more like scenes, kind of like yeah. looking at a film reel that kind of pop up these like it's like almost like stills that you listen that you kind of look back on and i know more about from the actual event from the witness testimony than i do from my own memory and yeah. i don't really remember much of like that there was i i guess in someone's mind there has to be a logical progression to doing these things i don't remember like having a, a brainstorming session it just <laughs> i was there um yeah. i remember being yeah. there i don't remember going home um the a big part of I think the reason why I was able to, so I was charged with aggravated robbery, um, which is looking at 40 to life class wow. Y felony. Um, and so I went to rehab with that on my mind. You know, that was my sentence I was, I was thinking about, but <clears throat> what happened was I was in jail for three days. Um, so cold Turkey detox, I actually had been in a motorcycle accident not too long before that. And my foot was in a walking boot. Wow. And so instead of going general population, I was actually in like a solitary cell for three days while my parents were making arrangements for a rehab. So I think they knew, you know, kind of what I was going through and, and did it. And, you yeah. know, kind of like, it's like, you know, you, should, you, you need to feel this. Um, yeah, and yeah. so I ended up going down to Austin to a 90 day inpatient rehab. And then I, I feel very lucky. And I think it's a big part of why I am where I am, that I had the resources and, and support to do that. Um, and to be, you know, have the, the means and the family at least to, to pay for Absolutely. something like that. But yeah, I, I chose to, um, forego medicated detox when I got there so they can bring you down softly. Sure. Um, I was already three days in. So I was yeah, like, nah, yeah. like, I, I, no, I want to, yeah. like, I'm just going to keep this going. I don't, don't put any more opiates in me cause they kind of, they taper you down. Um, and a big part of it was I knew I had the thought at that point that I needed to feel the real feeling. I needed to know what my body was actually doing. Yeah. And kind of like you said, you kind of get to this, like you get your, your senses back. I needed to understand how much of a crutch or like almost life support this, this drug was to me. And I already had a sense of that from the first three days, but it took, sure. it took weeks to, to get any semblance of normal function back. Yeah. That's why you know, sleep, eating appetite, everything was just without it. My body did not actually know how to function as a body. Like I was sweating. Or I'm sorry. I was shivering outside in Texas in 2011. It was 114 <laughs> degrees, I think, or 112 degrees. Or something. It was just yeah. ridiculous. And I was cold. And I'd go inside and be sweating and I couldn't eat and, you know, just all this, this just on discomfort. And so the, the thought of I'm going to do at least eight to 10 years, which is what you would do on a 40 year sentence in Arkansas. Yeah. And coupled with this physical discomfort, my goal at the time was to slam it into my brain that this was rock bottom, that this is my opportunity. Like it can't get worse than this. I'm going <laughs> to. You know, the only way it would get worse is yeah, if yeah. I'm dead or someone else is dead. Like this, right. we're not going there. So, like, I wanted to make it clear that this was my opportunity to accept bottom and rebuild from there. And I and that I think that's a big part of you know, there people. There's lots of different philosophies on sobriety and, and things like that. And I'm not the the poster child for AA, but you there is this acceptance that you have to do it for yourself. You have to choose, and there has to be right. a rock bottom. And yet there's something that reminds you in the, in the times where you're becoming weak or, or tempted of what, where things can go back to. And so I, I think about that now. I'm like, well, I know what I did and, you know, what it could be if I go back down that road again. 
Yeah, I think your story is incredibly powerful, you know, just because of the, the severity of the situation that you were in there. And I'm curious, do you think, like, say it had been a less severe situation where maybe it hadn't been the jail time that you were looking at or the serious penalty, but maybe some other thing that led you to the rehab, do you think you would have been able to go into it with the same mindset of like, hey, this is it, I'm taking this seriously? Or do you think it was the severity of that situation that made it possible for you to go into it with that mindset? I think it's the latter. I think it was the severity. And, and that's one thing that I consider myself extremely lucky for is that I, you know, did something so severe with such severe consequences without myself or anybody else getting hurt and with, you know, as minimal as possible, you know, effect on my life as you could possibly have. Obviously it had a huge yeah. effect, but like, you know, I could have done the 40 to yeah. in life if, if, if circumstances were different. And so I consider myself lucky that I was able to, and I was able to, but that I, so I did something so serious with such serious consequences without anybody getting hurt, without myself getting hurt. Because if I had gotten away with it, this is what's terrifying. And like, I did, there's no way I would have gotten away with it. It's, it's part of the reason why I was able to plea it is because like, it was so poorly done. Like it was obviously <laughs> yeah, amateur. Yeah. I was like, I, I said, please, I asked, I didn't demand, you know, I just like, it was yeah, obvious yeah, yeah. that, but so, but if I had gotten away with it, if I wasn't dumb yeah. in the moment, then I don't know what would have happened. I don't, I wouldn't, I wasn't seeking treatment. Right. And in my drug addled state, like if I had gotten away with that, I don't know what I would have done next. I don't think I would have become terrible. Like I wouldn't have fundamentally changed as a person, but you could see how you could be emboldened to other more more damaging things if you, if you don't get caught and I got caught. So happy for that. And I think that speaks to your comment about like this being your rock bottom and like saying like, okay, this is rock bottom. It can't get worse than this because if it does, I'm going to be dead or somebody else is going to be dead. But like that whole concept of rock bottom is something we've talked about a couple times before on the show. And it's like, is it real? Is it a real thing? Is it necessary to hit rock bottom? Or we, you know, we've had some of those conversations and I think the way you describe it is like it, rock bottom is a choice. Like you choose when you're there. <laughs> it's like, it, it could definitely have gotten worse for you. Mm-hmm. Say had you gotten away with it or had some, you know, had it gone down further down that path. So it's like, at that point, you have to look at it and say, no, this is this is where I'm getting off the train. This is where I'm getting off the ride. Like it, it could have gotten worse, but you choose like, hey, I'm I'm switching things up here and go into it with that mindset. And it's really cool to hear that the reha- your rehab experience sounds like it was a really good, fruitful experience for you to go in and kind of learn and change. Is that how you would describe it? Was it like a, a good atmosphere for that? It was, you know, I think it was, I think it was a big part of the, of the story. And I don't know, I can't look back and say that I wouldn't have been able to do kind of what I did without it, but I do think that it was instrumental. And so like, whenever the, you know, whenever I was brought into the conversation about the rehab, like it was already decision was made, but I'm like, I'm like, I want to go to Malibu. You know, I was thinking like, mm-hmm. I'm going to go to the beach and relax for a few months. Like that's my rehab. That's not what yeah, they yeah. chose my family. And they, on purpose, they didn't want to send me to a vacation rehab it wasn't shabby and it wasn't cheap but it was it was a place to get sober not a place to have a vacation right now there was disc golf and a ping pong table and i I played those a lot (laughs) but like you know it was it was there for you were there for business like the food wasn't great your beds weren't that comfortable you know it wasn't like you had roommates and all that kind of stuff and but it was it was good it's i think it's got a good reputation the one i went to went to austin recovery down there and nice um, nice i think it was instrumental that the environment was good um yeah I took it, you know, I, I tried to engage in it as much as possible and not, not be jaded. Um, yeah, so. I have, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> like I, I'll try to keep it like narrow and focused, but it's rare that I run into somebody or get to talk to somebody who went the, the rehab route where they had a good rehab experience. So that's why I ask about it. And I'm curious because I also had a, a pretty good rehab experience, but going into my experience, like we had no idea. I was I was looking because I had reached that place and I was looking with my parents and with my family. We had no idea where to go. It's so hard to tell, like, is this a good one? Is this this a bad one? And you hear so many horror stories about these really terrible places that just profit off of, you know, a fake model of of recovery that they don't even really invest in in making anybody better. 
And so I think it's awesome to hear that that your experience was really good. And I think that's another thing, you know, just another thing to be grateful for. That's that's how I feel about my experience for sure. Were you all doing like, did you do a lot of learning sessions? A lot of like, what was it like? Was it like a lot of counseling, a lot of learning, a lot of, uh, we did some like, we had stuff that we had to do in places we had to be at mine where it was like, okay, at this time we go here and then you have to go do your chores of like helping out however you help out with the dishes or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Was that kind of similar to what yours was like? It was. I mean, so they structured it. So it was very structured at the very beginning and it kind of became less structured over time because they want you to, you know, you can't just jump somebody out of a highly structured environment back into the regular world. And sure. so they kind of stair-stepped it. So like the first, it was lots of like group counseling, individual counseling sessions. And I, I related really well to my counselor. I think I got lucky with who I got because I don't think everybody did, um, but I did with mine and he was able to, I guess, speak about sobriety in a way that wasn't so black and white. Funny example, that's not funny, but like you, you have to, when we got there, you write down your life history. That was one of the things, you know, your whole story of your life. And then you write down your drug history and your relationship, all the drugs you've done, all the stuff and how you thought about it. And he told me something really early on. And this is maybe, I don't know, I, I don't know if this is the right thing to say on this podcast, but it's, we wrote about mushrooms, like psychedelic mushrooms yeah, versus yeah. like everything else. And he's like, the way you write about that is totally different than the way you write about all this other stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so he didn't, he didn't tell me that as an Oxcon user, addict, that I could never go back and, and do any sort of psychedelic again in my life, right? Because he knew yeah. that was, I'd had experiences on that that had been meaningful. And I think he was probably early on in the whole like, psychedelics for treatment of depression <laughs> yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. You know, so anyway, yeah. my point was he, he wasn't so by the book and he was able to have a nuanced conversation. So, but yeah, we did, we did classes, we did AA meetings, we had guest speakers that would come in and tell their story, you know, kind of AA style. And, uh, yeah. we did, you know, activities we go do, it was lots of community service. And, and for me in particular, I, I jumped at every chance for community service because I was, this is between sent, you know, arraignment and sentencing right sure. so I was and what we were trying to do the, the pie in the sky goal that my lawyer had no faith that we could get but we were going to try was to plead from aggravated robbery to theft of property which carries the ability to it's a 10-year sentence um wow and it's not violent and it allows you to do boot camp so arkansas at the time had a boot camp program military style where if you, you no matter what your sentence is as long as it's under 10 years you get out in 105 days of a military style boot camp and you're out on early release wow that's interesting so that's what we were gunning for and hoping for and that's ended up you know spoiler that's what we got um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it was because of getting sober it was because of community service it was because of everybody i know writing a letter you know anybody that we could think of that had a favorable opinion of me friends family community leaders that knew me for who i was not for the drugs yeah. i did and wrote a letter um, was able to get that plea. So anyway, I was, did a lot of community service. We did like music therapy, which was actually one of my favorite things about it. Yeah. We're like, that's cool. that you laid on the ground and listened to like crazy instrumental music for 30 minutes and basically like sober hallucination <laughs> almost like it really wasn't. Yeah. You drew my, you drew a mandala about what you saw and processed it with a, with a counselor. And it was just, it was great. And, um, they let us go and, and go to places to learn meditation. Oh, that's awesome. And things like that. And like I said, towards the end that you were able to leave, like I was able to get my car the last 30 days and leave for certain amounts of time a day and come back and then that kind of stuff. So it was kind of, I think it was overall, uh, it was well structured. And I know several people that I was in rehab with are still completely, you know, sober of what, you know, in their definition of what they wanted to be, they got, they got out of what they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a really phenomenal experience. I think that's a good segue to kind of that last bit you bring up about sober for whatever that means to them. That's something that we usually talk about here as well as like so many people have different definitions of what sobriety means to them and what being sober is or what recovery means to them and and what their story with that is. How would you talk about those two kind of, you know, the words as they are and what they mean to you, recovery and sobriety? I haven't really had a chance to really talk about this with anybody, at least on any sort of public forum, yeah, such as a podcast or anything. And, and I and I sometimes am hesitant because certain models of sobriety work so much better for other people. So like the AA model, right, which is you know twelve steps, uh, it's religious and or spiritual, depending on how you do it. You know, kind of re- relinquishing control to a higher power and substance free, like sure. The whole thought of like I take one drink, one beer, and then all of a sudden I've got a needle in my arm, like that kind of like thing yeah i think it works really well for people 
right? I think it, I think it can work. And, and some people are very much that way. It's just, they're, they're out of control with the use and not, that's not a bad thing at all. It's just the way it's the way it is. For and sure. it, depending on your substance, it has such a grip on you. Right. But I didn't relate very well to it. Yeah. The higher power, you know, giving up all personal accountability never sat right with me. <laughs> like the, in, in, and just putting it in faith, like saying I'm powerless. It's like, well, you're not, yeah. you know, everybody has a choice. Um, at any given point I chose to do what I did. I may not have chosen wisely or even have any idea about why I chose what I did, but I did it. And I made choices along that way. And so I, I think personal accountability has a ton. Personally, I think personal accountability has a ton to do yeah, with yeah. it. And I also am not a subscriber. Like I, I, uh, never had a real, I mean, I, I drank a ton in college, Yeah. but like I didn't drink every day. I, it wasn't like something that I really sought out and did. I hate hangovers. I still get terrible hangovers, but I still drink, you know, I'll have a beer. Yeah. I got a beer last night around the campfire. Yeah. And so I don't think that detracts personally for me. I'm not going to go straight from beer to oxy. To oxy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So there's just a nuance thing. And, and I don't know what, if there's organ, I haven't really done a lot of research into this and organizations that kind of follow a similar uh, mindset or if there's a program for this, but to me, it's about addressing what it is that you're trying to numb. If that makes yeah. sense. Like it's, Absolutely. it's much more about therapy and figuring out a root cause and then the understanding that even if you figure out if you're numb, that if you, if you've solved the personal issue that you maybe were treating through whatever it is with things like Oxycontin and even alcohol, like you can still develop a physical addiction that you can't control. So it's just like, it's this mix of, of psychological and then understanding the science and the physicality behind it and knowing that you might not be in control if you start again. Yeah. And it's tricky, right? Like your mind can play tricks on you. Like I, you know, I've had to, I've had all four of my wisdom teeth removed at one time and then I had a, uh, my, uh, appendix removed. So both oh, wow. those times I was put on, you know, hydrocodone low dose, you know, not, not super powerful, but enough to you know, you get that feeling again. And I had that feeling that, that kind of comfort, even though I was in discomfort and pain, it's like, Oh, that's sure. familiar. I know so this. in those situations, yeah. I gave the pills to my wife, you know, and said, I need one every six to eight hours or whatever, as the bottle yeah. says. And, and you are my, you know, pharmacist. I don't, yeah. I don't want this. I think I probably could have held them, but there's that temptation. Right. And when you're actually looking at it, it's just different. And so, yeah. And you don't want to put yourself in that situation. Yeah. Exactly. So. Yeah, I think. Well, I think that's that's really awesome to hear what what it means, like what those words mean to you, and how I think a lot of people get caught up in the in the notion or the idea that like, hey, sobriety only means that you don't do any substances, and it's this and it's that, and people tend to get really prescriptive with their definition of what it means because that's what it means to them, you know, and it's really important to them or how they learned about sobriety or their path. But I think it's really powerful and helpful to hear like everybody has a different approach to what sobriety means for them. And there are also it's like kind of like a spectrum of, you know, a range of different ways that like I know for me, like I, I can never touch alcohol again because it's not worth it to me. Right. Like I know that. But that's not to say that like, you know, there, there's such a, a range of like what's the next trigger? What's the next thing that I'm going to struggle with? Like caffeine is also kind of like technically a drug, right? Or like whatever other substances that, that people put in their body on a daily basis is like, where do you draw that line? And so for some people, the way their mind works, it's really the only way to go about it is I have to draw this hard line. And I know that that works for me. And that's how I am with it. And how a lot of people have found success with it, like you said, but there are also different approaches that are like, look, I know this works for me and this allows me to live my life in the way I want to live it and stay clean and not have the oxy problem and not have all these other effects. But I can still do X, Y, and Z because it's I've dealt with my shit and it's not becoming a problem for me. So I like that that uh, perspective because historically on the show, we've kind of focused on on the one side of, you know, no substances completely, you know, substance free from everything. But I think there are a lot of kind of, I think blurry lines has a negative connotation and I don't mean it in a negative way, but there are just a lot of like blurred kind of approaches that work differently for different people. So yeah, I really appreciate that, that definition and kind of how it's worked out for you that way. Yeah. And it, you know, it was, it was I went, you know, fully sober for, for multiple years after I got out. 
and I was yeah. actually studying. I was back in school and I was like, it was like 5 PM. I was at a coffee shop and I was reading up for a test the next day. And like, there's like a draft of beer at the bar. I'm like, it'd be really nice to have beer while I study. And I did. And I was like, you know, I didn't, I didn't, nothing happened. Right. And then that was now seven years ago. So obviously the, 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 the point is proven, but the, the other thing is that like, and I remember this from rehab, people can, your place, if you haven't dealt with the issue and I'm not saying that I've fully dealt with whatever it was that, that caused me to do what I have, you know, there's obviously like everybody's sure. kind of got their thing, but like, I remember I really wanted my sunglasses in rehab. I really had some nice coasters <laughs> that I really yeah. liked. And when I went from Arkansas to Texas for rehab, like they didn't make it with me in the bag. And I asked my family, like, Hey, will you mail me these coasters? And they didn't do it like the first week. And so the next week I was talking to me, like, Hey, will you mail me my sunglasses? Like it's sunny. I'm playing disc golf. Like we, like, I guess it's a couple weeks in. I was like, we sent them to me and they're like, what are these sunglasses to you? And the counselor got involved and he's like, are you replacing <laughs> your, you know, why are these sunglasses so important to you? And I'm like, well, because they're, I bought them and I like them and it's sunny and I'd like them. Like, yeah. you know, you have no identity at that point. You kind of don't know who you are. And like, yeah, they were like, you know, just like, and, and maybe there was something, but what my point is like, <laughs> there was no issue with sunglasses for me, but people <laughs> like can replace an addiction with all sorts of things. You mentioned caffeine, like you get, you get sober and all of a sudden you're like drink 20 cups of coffee or you smoke cigarettes, like five packs a day or you, yeah, yeah. sugar is a big one. Like, especially for, Absolutely. I don't know, you know, I hear this a lot from alcoholics, right? Cause alcohol turns to sugar. So like a lot of alcoholics recovering have some sort of like candy that they can't stop eating. Yep, and so like, me. and yeah. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Well, obviously eating a shit ton of candy is not good for you, but like, right if you can find an outlet that kind of serves the same thing, but way less destructive, right. Then I'm not sure. It's like, maybe you need to deal with that eventually, but in short term, hell yeah. Eat candy. It's an improvement, like, right? Yeah. Or like yeah. for me, I, yeah. it's probably like mountain bikes for me. Like I like yeah. mountain biking. I like to mountain bike. I gear, I geek out on my bikes. I, I buy and sell them. I kind of upgrade them. And it's like this, like, you know, almost obsessive thing. And I'm sure it has something to do with the same part of my brain that was, you know, has an addiction problem. Right. But to me, it's like, hell yeah, put it into mountain bikes. It's not necessarily cheaper, (laughs) but it's a lot less destructive and kind of helps me keep fit. So I don't know if I really had a point there. It's just that the the point is it's all very nuanced. And and I think that the the more we can accept nuance and, and really treat people on a case by case basis, the better success there is with this whole journey. Yeah, I think that's beautifully said. And I, I think the point is perfect. It fits exactly what we're what we're talking about in that like it's such a scale of like as addicts, and I think most people in general function like this to some degree, it's all replacing or or going to the next level of obsession or addiction or whatever it is with whatever we're trying to be it sugar for an alcoholic or be it, you know, for me, like it, I've talked about it on the show before, but it was like when I got sober, I fished, I started fly fishing every single day. Like I, it was unhealthy. The amount of like, I was going out of my way and neglecting other things in my life and friendships and all sorts of stuff to go be in the river every single day. And it's like, that's not ideal either probably, but it's healthier than what I was doing. Right. And then, yeah, you switch to, you know, 10 cups of coffee a day, also not ideal, but it's, it's better than what it was. And it's, I really like the thought that you brought up of like, hey, maybe we'll have to address this at some point if it continues to go in this direction. There are all sorts of little things like that in life, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I like that thought process a lot and it makes a lot of sense to me. It's just like, you know, dealing with the things you can deal with and, and you know, going about things the best way that you can. There's so much nuance and everybody's situation is completely different. So it's, that's one of the hardest things to overcome and in, in getting sober and going through recovery is like everybody has an opinion on how you should do it, but it, it ultimately it has to be your thing that you develop and and grow into. And that's the hardest part of it is like doing it yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that mountain bike comment from the last thought is probably the, the best segue we could get to, to you kind of talking a little bit, a little bit about your life now and what the outdoors are like now for you. And, and also maybe get into kind of like, you know, post recovery or post post rehab, what life kind of trajectory shaped into after that. Yeah. So, you know, when I got out of rehab, I, I went to court. Actually, let me rephrase that. I, I went to a sober house for a month in Austin to, you know, kind of continue that path and stay in a safe space. Um, but I had my date in court and you had to go, uh, we had struck a plea deal. Um, so I knew 
what was coming, which was nice, uh, you know, helpful at least for mental yeah. uh, peace. But I knew I was going to have to go to get locked up. Right. So like you get a prison term, you actually have to go to jail first until they can process you into prison. And in some states that can be substantial. So I went into Washington County jail knowing that I was going to go to prison with a recommendation for boot camp. And that's important. Like you don't know you're going to go to boot camp. They write like this person qualifies for boot camp. And then when you get to prison, mm-hmm. you have to apply and then wait for a spot to open. So it's all very, wow. and you don't even guaranteed to have it. So I didn't know what was going to happen. I knew I had a 10 year sentence. It was 20 years of 10 suspended. I knew best case scenario. If I had to do all 10, I'd do 20 months on good time, which is serving good time, which the thing about prison and being locked up is, you can't guarantee you're going to be on good behavior. Even if you are, they treat things like they do in third grade. So if someone punches you or you get in an argument and you defend yourself, there's no explaining it. You're both in trouble. Yeah. You're both locked down. They just treat, you know, like, I don't yeah. care who started it. You're both grounded. That's there's exactly, no nuance. It is a no nuance situation. Yeah. And then you're surrounded by people, a very wide swath of society. But if you were to characterize it, it's like, a a whole mix of mental health issues, substance abuse issues, just terrible environments people came from. Right. So like, say like, you know, average education level of, or, or kind of emotional, emotional development of like, once again, third grade. So you're with fully grown men. Yeah. Mental health, a lot of them with mental health issues with, you know, the coping skills of, of someone uh, much younger. So like, it's a dangerous environment. So I, I say all to say of like, you can do everything right. And you end up serving all your time because you just were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I did meet really great people in this too. And most people in there are actually kind of great once you remove them yeah. from their, their problems. So that's all I'm going to say. I went in, I did three or three and a half months, I think at Washington County jail, worked in the kitchen. I had to be the trustee and, and worked in the kitchen, which is kind of a best place to be because you get better food and you're cooking and nice, you yeah. have something to do, right? You're not yeah, just sitting yeah. there all day long. And so, um, I was the dietitian for the kitchen. So I was like preparing the people for that had like, you know, food allergies and stuff. And we made the guards meal. So anyway, it was, it was, it was not a fun experience by any means, but I wasn't bored. You know, we had a lot of hard work to do. Yeah. That sounds like a good place to be if you, if you're going to be there. Yeah. So we prepared food for 450 people every day, which was kind of like if I ever needed a job in a commercial kitchen, I'd probably fall right <laughs> into place. Um, yeah, yeah. Cause they make you the way you work there. Like it's everybody starts at dishes and then you go to pots of pans and you go to this and then you get your, like, whatever you're going to do your job. But, yeah. uh, you know, I, I was transferred out. I went to a place called Malvern, which is a, uh, kind of where everybody goes processing center for, for prison four or five days. It's hard to really tell. I was in full solitary confinement there. Cause it's just like, that's where they put you and wow. had a Bible, I had a Bible, um, I read through the Bible, the whole thing. And then I started reading through it again. Yeah. Yeah. Which was kind of just, you know, it was interesting. And I, I slept for like the first day, but you just can't sleep anymore. You know, you just kind of, yeah. solitary is not, not a good place to be, but, uh, was transferred to general population for a few days. So I was there, I, think I was in that prison for a week. And then right before I got assigned like a job, which is host squad at most prisons, which means they don't use lawnmowers. They use prisoners. You get like 12 to 15 prisoners, lined up really close to each other, kind of chest the back and you put a hoe in each body's hands and you just walk wow. around and mow the grass like Jeez. this. You, just, you take like, you do you know, three <laughs> cuts and then a step forward, three cuts and step forward. What? So I ended up doing that at boot camp, but it, that's where everybody starts as far as a prison job. So right before I was about to do my first day, I got the call saying, Hey Andrew, you know, uh, you know, prisoner of this, it was, I remember my prisoner number. I won't say it for, because it feels oddly private, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, and I was like, okay, sweet. Please be boot camp. Please be boot camp. They're like you're going to boot camp. So, trucked out, uh, transferred to a place called Tucker prison farm, kind of central Arkansas mm. and went into the boot camp program, which was 105 days of just boredom, verbal abuse, mild physical abuse. Um, yeah. you know, just like everything you see in the movies about boot camp, but none of like the survival or combat training or any of the useful skills you get from military yeah, training, yeah. you know, just, just like, just, just the all, the, parts. all the Ugh. discipline and kind of BS and, 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 you know, and, and I was grateful for the time I spent, learning to meditate and, you know, and the whole thing is just kind of a thought exercise. We can talk for too long about that, but it's the majority of it was boredom and you're not allowed to fall asleep or you're kicked out basically. So like wow. you're just sitting there kind of like I am now with, with no back on a cot for 17 hours a day. That's wild. That's, that seems like a wild thing that that's like a, a even a possible option. Yeah. And it, unfortunately it's not an option anymore for Arkansas. Yeah. yeah. It's, been, it's lost its funding, but what there were three different, shifts of drill instructors and all of them are military. It's a military, it's a military boot camp. You know, you 
you know, your, your fatigues and all that kind of stuff. And, um, one of the three was in there for rehabilitation. Like they, they cared about the rehabilitating these people to get out of prison and they kind of tried and they kind of went by the book. There was like drills and instruction and like stuff like that. One of the, the other one of the three was kind of ambivalent. They just kind of wanted to be there. They weren't mean. They were just kind of kind of funny sometimes. They didn't do a damn thing. So we never we were just bored the whole time. And the third flight was like like they wanted to inflict suffering on inmates. And they were like too soon out of fresh com- like real combat into like they don't know what they're gonna do. And so they took this job. And and so the experience varied wildly wildly. And they they worked on kind of three day shifts. So like it was fine for three days or like, yeah. And then it was awful for three days and then it was wow neutral. And then it was kind of that cycle again. So, you know, it, it, there's a lot to be said, but it, it taught me a lot of patience, you know, a lot, like a lot of just kind of dealing with BS and cause a lot of it is BS. Like you, you, you fart and a drill instructor walks by and all of a sudden you're in trouble, <laughs> you know, cause they smelled it. It's like that kind yeah, of stuff yeah. look in your face yeah. and yell at you. And like, it's just, you know, it was, it, there was mild, like you weren't allowed, we didn't talk to anybody the whole time. You were allowed 30 minutes once a week to speak. Oh, wow. To anybody, unless, except for a drill instructor. Sure. And, and then you had that permission. So like, it was just like this kind of solitary group environment, which is interesting. Yeah, that sounds like a wild experience. I did complete it and got out. And, and, and once you're out, there's an experience that I was actually just talking to somebody else about that then locked up. It's like, I didn't believe that I was out of, prison until like we were off prison property like even going through the first gate i was like they're gonna pull me back in there's no way yeah. and then the second gate i was like this, this can still go wrong like we're in the parking lot okay like we're now off prison property i'm like okay like i took a big deep breath i'm like okay i finally feel like i'm out wow i ended up you know I'm, there's, there's a lot of privilege in this which i like to acknowledge right like my family had the means to put me through rehab hire a good lawyer you know, go through the legal system the way it's supposed to work. And luckily don't have that opportunity. And once again, I was able to land at my dad's house in Fayetteville with a support, you know, with a, with an allowance and food on the table and a place to sleep and support to go back to school. So I ended up going, uh, going back to the local community college, um, for a couple semesters and making straight A's. I think maybe I had one B, um, and getting back into petitioning to get back in university of Arkansas and going in front of the committee, explaining my past. That was the first time I had to do that. And getting back in, I was, my plan at the time was, I was outdoor rec, sports recreation management, outdoor recreation man, sports management. I forget exactly what the acronym was, but sure. my goal at the time was to move to Colorado and run a mountain. I wanted to be like the mountain manager at Keystone. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Like the ops yeah. manager, you know, like that was my, like, I was like, I'm going to get rec management. I'm going to move out West. I'm going to be a lifty until I can figure out how to become, you know, in charge here with my degree in this. Yeah. I like that. Um, so I ended up, uh, some friends of mine had started a brand called Fayette Chill in college yeah. out of Fayetteville and um, was having some pretty good success. They just moved into a warehouse and opened up a bunch of retail stores and an office. And I was working at the University of Arkansas bookstore and shipping and receiving. And so they, my, my friend Graham was like, hey, you know, do you want a job doing shipping and receiving for us? Yeah. And I was like, well, well, yeah. And that, that turned into a full-time job, which means I couldn't do full-time school. So I graduate, I ended up transferring to John Brown University to do, it's kind of like an executive MBA, but for undergrad. So like you go in and learn management and you get an undergrad, uh, in night school. So I went like once a week on Mondays for four oh, hours nice. a night and then the rest of it was online and got my undergrad in organizational management while I was working at Fayetteville. And my now wife moved up from Little Rock and we moved in together in, in Fayetteville and, you know, started just kind of started rebuilding a normal life. Um, yeah. graduated, ended up working through lots of different things at Fayetteville's web, uh, to kind of HR and hiring to still logistics and inbound and outbound freight. And then also started working on like kind of the product side and ended up being the COO and taking over most like moving parts of the company or, you know, assuming that role. And then I was the CEO, CEO for a little while while the founder took a, a somewhat of a sabbatical camp, but he was still working, but you know, was traveling around the country in a, in his van and I took over moving parts. So learned a lot about the outdoor industry and, and, you know, product development and branding and learned the power, like kind of the power of brand and, um, yeah. how you nurture it. And also just was able to see how you hire people and how you have to, if you have to, how you fire people and, um, you know, set up roles and responsibilities of the company and, and basically everything you have to do to start a business, which, was very foundational to leading to what I do now, I think. Yeah, that's a that's a such a cool opportunity and such a cool trajectory. I remember I remember seeing Fayetteville for the or Fayette Chill for the first time like 
years back because I've been in the, you know, St. Louis and Columbia area for a while. So I feel like we got to see it uh, pretty quickly after it was becoming a thing off of the campus and, and outside of Fayetteville. It, uh, I started noticing it, you know, back in the day and thinking, wow, this is a cool, they, they really understand branding. Like they, they get what they're doing, you know, from a content standpoint and, and marketing and the product is awesome. And then watching that grow from up here has been really cool. Uh, so it's, it's neat to hear that, that you got to be a part of that experience and that that was kind of a, a helpful path for you through that company. Cause I've always kind of admired what they've done down there. And then it sounds like it set you up with, with the exact skill set that you needed to, to do the next, the next thing. I was able to, one, I will say that the, the, some of the power of brand and marketing, like what we did really well and specifically some of the people there was just, was just build something that's meaningful to people out of something that just really didn't have to be, which t-shirts, right. You know, and build a culture around it. And there were limitations to the brand at the time that we always had to run up against, which was like, we started with t-shirts. We wanted to expand out. Mo has since done that in a, in a good way, I think. Yeah. And, but also the name was, you know, Regio specific, right? So it was Fayetteville, Fayetteville. We had to get over that always. And, and once we did, it wasn't a big deal, but it was always a somewhat of a limitation. So some of these things, it's definitely the, the, the operational hands-on learning, but also just like, you know, I started lives and like the name was going to be broad, you know, we were going to enter the market with the products at the level, the price point and the sophistication that we wanted to be known for, you know, yeah. like don't, yeah. don't, let's not mess around with the small stuff to get to the big stuff. And that's a big part of why we chose like Kickstarter or why I chose Kickstarter at the very beginning is because we needed to get a certain volume of sales and production to get going on products that weren't off the shelf to build something that doesn't exist and make it real, you know, take some, take some scale. And it's hard to get to that scale early and something like crowdfunding and Kickstarter is, is a really unique tool to do that. What do you think it is about the whole, the area that you're in that has allowed, like, I mean, it's because I, I don't think you said yet, you're, you know, your company, but that has allowed your your new company, well, quote unquote new and allowed, you know, other companies like Fayette Chill. And, and there are a lot of brands down in that area, outdoor brands that are starting to come up. What do you think it is about the area? And then kind of, I guess, beyond that, uh, how it's helped in, in the role it's played in, in your, your foundation and in your company. I mean, I think some of it goes back to that, like kind of Ozark culture, right. Of like, it's beautiful. It's, it's unique. It's powerful. It's under known. Right. And so all the places that you'd expect have kind of brands that own those places. And so like there wasn't right. anything here that, that no one owned it. And Fayetteville really did one a long way to owning the outdoors part of what we of what this area has. And and so there's also just a, a talent pool, right? And and the you got the university plus like the, the mountains, the hills, the beautiful scenery, but the university of young people that are intelligent. And you've also and I don't know how much it has to do with like small brands, but it has to have something is when you've got the world's biggest retail store in your backyard yeah. like walmart's here um logistics jb hunt is here food tyson like all these are three of the fortune 100 in a area of the total metro of five hundred thousand people each town of less yeah. than 100 so like there's a lot of opportunity here there's lots of, of money and talented people mixed with a kind of midwestern meets southern culture weird like north of arkansas is somewhere in this crux of like southern to midwestern so you've got like kind of practicality and, and niceness and friendliness with like kind of yeah. independence and ruggedness and there's some of the downsides that come with um this region of the united states too but like you know there's just this unique kind of slurry of 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 ingredients in north of arkansas that i think is unique for the size of market that it is and it, it creates pride i think yeah um, yeah people want to own it and like Fayetteville, you know, they're all from Dallas. Yeah. You know, when they, they came up here and they called it Fayetteville cause it was like, Oh, we're going from Dallas to Fayetteville. It was like this chill yeah, kind of yeah. sleepy mountain town with a, with a fun scene. And, and they wanted to own that. And I'm glad they did it late foundation. And there was some brands before that and some brand afterwards that have continued to build on that. Like for us, for me, to start lives in, which we, you know, so we haven't mentioned, but lives in is, is, is my brand and, and our brand. And we looked really hard at moving out West my wife and I, when it was just an idea and saying, well, should we move to Northern California, Pacific Northwest? Yeah. Is it Portland or Seattle? We went back and forth for that for forever. Is it Boulder? Is it the Western Slope kind of Grand Junction area? Let's go somewhere where we can build this, where the brands like us are built. And we just decided that one, our friends and family are here. We know it's comfortable, which is, you can't overstate that. But two, yeah. the region has owned outdoor in the last 
five years or really 10 years starting with mountain biking and then expanding into climbing and floating and backpacking. And like, yeah, from a business perspective, like Walmart has seen, has now grasped onto the outdoor recreation scene as their biggest recruiting tool. Yeah. Right. It's so like the, the, there was the, the whiffs of things that are happening now that weren't really out in public yet that I knew were coming. So like the outdoor incubator at the university of Arkansas, the funding sources for outdoors, the regional support events and stuff like that conferences. I was like, this might be the place to be. And we're already here and there's a, there is an advantage to being kind of early in that, I think, and owning it. And Absolutely. so while, while we don't consider ourselves a local brand, Arkansas is not even in the top five and usually not in the top 10 as far as gross sales where we sell things sure. to. It's mostly where you'd expect kind of on the coast and stuff. We're proud to be here. And if you watch us and follow us, you'll see, you know, we shoot out West and shoot out East, but you'll also see like photos and videos from our area and our hometown and things that make it yeah. special. So we're happy to be here. It's, it's, it's different. It's somewhat unexpected too. Like, you know, we're a very sustainable company. We do, everything we do is built on this idea of sustainability and something like that coming out of the South is different. Something like that coming out of California. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think all those things that you speak to about the location and in the area being perfect, that all makes a lot of sense. You know, it's, it's something that's been growing and growing and growing over the last 10, 15 years. And now people are getting to see, you know, all the whole trail network, the whole, all this, all the trail systems down there and all the recreation opportunities that there are here. Um, it, it really allows people to have like the experience of being able to be outside every single day. If you choose to be outside every single day and having it not be like this overcrowded, you know, super negative experience. Not that it always is like that, but a lot of times when I go out to other places, if I'm out West or, or somewhere, or even out East on some of the rivers, like you go to the Ocoee or you go somewhere mm -hmm. like that. And it's like, this is so packed. It's so full of people. And then here, not that, not that there aren't crowded days, but we have a lot of good stuff here and, and a lot of people who are getting into this now, getting into the outdoor space. So that's really cool to hear how that's all just shaped up to be a perfect fit um, for you all. What would you say is like for you with combining, you know, another thing we always kind of talk about on the show is the combination or the the fit between your recovery and how you live your life now with through the lens of recovery and the outdoors and how those two things fit together. What does that look like for you now? I know we when we when we talked right at the beginning before we re started recording, you had mentioned that you just camped last night and you're out mountain biking. What uh what's your day to day look like for getting outside and how that how that helps you. So the, the, the experience of, of what I went through and the recovery and the, and the looking at kind of down the barrel of, of, of rock bottom was very foundational and what lives and stands for. I didn't know at the time, but lives in is for those who don't know, it's, it's this is a Swedish word lives Nutade, which means one who lives life fully. And that's where we derived the name. And, and before we arrived at the name, it was me writing down these values and principles and, and mission of what we do and how we do it. And the idea is to live an experience filled life. So maximizing for experiences versus maximizing for stuff. And so the understanding is to have great experiences, especially outdoors, you need gear, you need clothing, you need to own things. You have to consume. You have to swallow that pill to basically live in modern society. So if you're going to consume, <clears throat> what are you buying? And so lives in is this idea of creating really high quality, durable, versatile apparel for people who are trying to maximize for experiences. Right. And there's lots of that's it affects all of our design from color to design. So I'm not trying to plug the brand so much as say like, no, that's, no, it makes that's sense. me, yeah, that's my philosophy. And so like, I like things and that's where I had to set these limitations on myself and IE mountain bikes. Like I took the bars off a mountain bike because like I, I will, I want to, it, it facilitates an experience like riding itself is what I'm going for. Yeah. But I also get to nerd out on the thing itself and, and really get into it and acquire it and own it. And, and it's this idea of like the things that you have aren't just, passive you have to manage them so the more you have the more you have to manage the less time you have to do things and so like my life as an outdoorsman and my life as a recovery you know someone in recovery and and having gone through what i went through is based on this idea that i want to spend more time outside yeah and so here like you know i can leave my garage and ride bella vista you know the back 40 the blowing springs the down under trails or what do they call it now and then uh 
Kohler and Slaughter Pen. I can ride to all those places from my garage. There's 400 miles or so of single track. Pretty wild. And I don't have yeah. to get in my car to get there. And so, like, just moving from Fayetteville to Bentonville, like, we probably would have never done that five, 10 years ago. It was more of like we ended up putting our headquarters up here. My wife already works here. So, and we had kids. So, it's like, do you want to commute or spend time with your kids? And if you're spending time with your kids and commuting, when can you mountain bike? So, it's like, move where you can do all of these things. And that's what this represents to us. And that's what, you know, from an outdoor perspective and building the brand, like every once in a while, it's my job to go outside. I don't, having two kids and a startup and a business like you, it ends up, your kind of outdoor recreation goes down. It doesn't go up. But I figure if I'm working in an outdoor industry, making outdoor apparel, it's part of my job to get outside. And so from from a lifestyle design perspective, it's, you know, make it so you, you get paid to go do the thing you love. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, man. And I think, you know, for you being able to get out on the trails without having to get in a car is probably the best thing for you there in Bentonville because my last few Bentonville experiences have been uh, pretty much just sitting in traffic. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty wild. The downside down of massive investment and growth is that everything yeah. under construction. There's like yeah. seven cranes outside our office window because we're right, the new Walmart home office is under construction and we're literally across the yeah. street. Wow. So like, yeah, it, there's just construction everywhere. Is it close to the old office? It's down the road. So eight streets, it's like down eight street. It's closer to the interstate. They, it's hundreds of acres. It's like many, many blocks and they just destroyed everything that was there and they're rebuilding from the ground yeah. up. And it's, it's actually pretty cool. You can find the plans of like a walkable park Wow, campus with like bike trails through it and like ponds and rivers and forests. And it's yeah. all, they're you're using mass timber, which is kind of cool. So it's like they're using mass timber laminated wood construction, which is much more sustainable and lasts longer. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's one of those things that like, it's a little off topic for us, but man, I'm, I'm always intrigued in that stuff because it's like people look at big corporations like that and there's so much negativity, but there is, and a lot of it is, is deserved, but there are also within that negativity, just by the the scale of the company itself is opportunity for really cool things like changing the way they do lighting in the store or or changing the way they approach certain things makes an impact just because of the impact they're having no matter what. Right. Yeah. And that's the the optimistic view of things. Like obviously there's, there's fair <laughs> reasons for criticism and, and I, and I, and I don't think they're necessarily wrong, but the opportunity is huge. Like, I don't know if people know this, but like Patagonia and Walmart got together to make the sustainable apparel coalition. Like they, yeah, like you'd think they would never work together. Patagonia, like they, 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 they realize this, that when you've got fortune one, the world's biggest company, if they make a move to sustainability, that can have so much more of an impact than a hundred brands like us doing the same thing. Absolutely. And so like, you just got to have to kind of swallow the, like that's the path that we need to do for the biggest change. And I think brands like us can like are smaller, more nimble and can, can show, you know, an example of it. But until Walmart decides to turn their massive ship, then really, you know, it's kind of the opportunity is just not as big. Um, And Walmart had, you know, for their, point they've gone above and beyond they've got project gigaton to remove a gigaton of carbon and it's not just talk my wife's very private and hates that i talk about her sometimes but she works in that for that company and it's real they're actually doing things and when they do that it will remove a gigaton of carbon (laughs) which who else can who else can do that yeah it's pretty wild to think yeah nobody else could even approach that man it sounds like you're in the perfect place like the perfect place the in in multiple ways you know geographically uh, with your recovery and with your habits daily, you know, like I just, I, I think it's really inspiring. And I know that that word kind of can get thrown under the bus sometimes, but it's really inspiring. And it's really cool to, to hear your story of how you've ended up where you are and how these things have happened for you and how you've made them happen through your recovery. Um, I think the, the last thing I have, or the last question I have is if you were like, if you were looking at somebody who's in a position like you were in uh, when you were going to your rehab and looking at that jail time, if you're looking at somebody in that position, what piece of advice would you would you give? Well, I think um, it's it's always hard to give advice from your point of view, like what worked for you, because you never know. And I, and I honestly think that I might have something slightly wrong with my brain where I don't I don't worry very much. Like I do worry, but I don't ruminate on what could happen, right? And I think sure. that if I could package that, I don't, I said, I'm not sure it's like a thing I do. It's more of like a bug or a feature, depending on which way you look at it. But like in that situation, if you get wrapped up in what could happen and the negative side of it, and you just let yourself replay that, then it's going to yeah. be really hard to think about what can happen on the positive side. And so like, 
I choose to think about what can happen if I do it. What's the best case scenario and operate like that's actually real. Like it's reality. And, and more often than not, it is. And I think people are generally more pessimistic than often optimistic and can, can get caught in thinking that the worst thing is going to happen and only planning for that. And it's, it's, what's the damn quote? I think it's Andrew Ford. It's like, you either think you're going to make it or you think you're not going to, and you're right. Like, the, yep. you know, whichever way you think is where you're going to head and you may not achieve it, but, and it's not going to be as bad as you think it's going to be. And it's not going to be as good as you think it's going to be. But if you can kind of choose to, to go towards the positive outcome, I think you could, you'd be surprised about what actually can happen. Yeah. I love, I love that. I love that, uh, thought because it's so true. And it's, it's one of those things where you can't just think your way out of a situation and you can't just action your way out of a situation, but you have to use both of those things and both of them are powerful and whatever direction you, you go in and whatever direction you feel like you're going in, you have, you have volition there. You have the ability to choose what, what your future can look like. And I think that's a perfect note to kind of, kind of wrap it up on. So I, I love that advice. And like I said, man, just like so happy for you and, and appreciative of you taking the time to be here with us for this conversation today. So thanks a lot for that. Yeah. And I appreciate it. And thanks for the invite. It's been, it's been really fun. Thanks again to Andrew for coming on the show. One of the main takeaways from my conversation with Andrew was about how intense his situation really was before he was able to correct course. You know, we often talk about rock bottom as a concept in recovery, and it was interesting to hear about how his experience was so intense and the consequences seemed so serious. It sounded like an obvious rock bottom spot when in reality, it could have actually continued to get worse had he not gotten help. The other thing that really stood out to me was Andrew's drive and his ability to create positive change in his life. This is something that's common in most of these stories we hear on Nature Untold. People who turn their life around through recovery often find this newfound sense of clarity, drive, and volition that allows them to accomplish some pretty amazing things going forward. And that's definitely the case in Andrew's story. So I want to say, you know, thanks again to Andrew for being on the show. And thanks to you for listening. As always, I want to take a minute to ask that you leave a review on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to Nature Untold. Leaving reviews and sharing the show are the biggest way you can support our mission to raise awareness about these important recovery stories. Thanks to you for your help, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time.